After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Here we are, and uh, you know I'm always happy to hang with you, man. You 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 just are so um, the way in which you relate with your audience and social media and all of it. It is so um, the level of consciousness that you display with people and the way uh, it is so accessible. It is really prime for mind rolling and everything that I've tried to do over these years in a, in a similar way. Just make it all accessible. Just It's just you and me, guys and gals, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> all, let's Rather drop all the, the masks. Let's yeah, drop yeah, all the just, pretenses yeah. and let's just be who we are. Yeah. I wish we could take off all the masks, <laughs> hopefully, <laughs> eventually. huh? So how you been? We're just catching up, everybody out there. We, we haven't talked in a while. How are you? How is it going in Austin? It's amazing, man. It's been, uh, I mean, obviously there's been challenges in the macro, but, you know, getting married this year, you know, mm. spending time with my amazing wife, um, you know, a lot of good things are happening on, uh, in every front, you know, from my fit for service fellowship, which I started, the podcast is going great. Um, my writing is good. I've been writing a lot of poetry um mm. been having fun i put in a pickleball course i've been playing ball and having it's just been uh it's been a really enjoyable time for sure full life that's for sure right mm -hmm. uh, um poetry i love poetry. i just got uh a wonderful book that i had lost from uh leonard Cohen. Mm. a book of it was it's only you know within the last two eight or ten years that he put this thing out I wish I had it in front of me, but uh, do you, are you an appreciator of Leonard by any chance? You know, I've read a little bit of him and, uh, and what I've read has been great, but I haven't spent the time to really do a deep dive. But uh, mm. if, you, if you recommend it, I absolutely will. No, it's a Christmas present I'm going to send you. I <laughs> love right, this book so go. much. Yeah, let's go. It's so great. He's from Montreal. And many people who listen to the podcast know that because I talk about him all the time. And he was like, when I was a kid, he was a hero. You know, he was like this, the most beautiful, lyrical, poetic, uh, real, visceral kind of thing, you know, and a lot about, there's a great movie, by the way, Aubrey and anybody else who's listening called uh, Marianne and Leonard. And Marianne was his muse and his gal for years. He's, and she lived in Hydra right? Off the mm. coast of 
Greece, I guess. And uh, so he used to go there a lot. It's this sunburst kind of beautiful town on right on the you know on the in the Mediterranean. And so they they had footage from back then. You know, a lot of uh, artists would go there, and he went there to write and so on. And it's a wonderful picture that gives you an idea of the kind of relationship that they had, but also who Leonard really is. Mm. And uh, one of his most famous, do you know that famous song? It's called Chelsea. I mean, his most famous song is Hallelujah, right? It's uh, just a beautiful, beautiful piece. And then there's Chelsea Hotel. And he had an affair with Janis Joplin at the uh, the Chelsea. If you remember, the Chelsea is a famous place for the life of of a crazy shit. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. What I I if I had known to think about this, I want to hear one of your poems. Do you have something sitting around there, or somebody can throw it at you? (coughs) Yeah, let me. uh, I think I might be able to bring something up on. I might be able to bring something up. I'm trying to think which one would be good. Um, if it comes to mind, something that, uh, that because I have a couple that are unreleased and unpublished yet that I'm kind of waiting to release. Mm. So that would be my natural inclination, but I want to put out put it out first on... Uh, yeah, yeah, in, for sure. In the, with the video and with everything else that I'm doing. Um, but there's, let me let me think for a second and there may be some that I could um, I could share. There's... There's one Talk that's about putting kind of you on the spot. Oh, yeah, there's yeah. one. It's kind of an older poem. Um, let me see if I can bring it up. And, and I do some of these poems. Some are more like traditional poems, and some are more like spoken word. Um, mm. And yeah, because I never even—that's not something I knew about you. We've never talked about it. We've because uh, I have a love for poetry, uh, and uh, exemplified by Leonard Cohen. But uh, yeah. I mean, all of the, I love all of the, the mystic poets from mm, like Rumi and, yeah, and Hafiz yeah, yeah. and all that. And Hafiz is such a character. I love, oh I love God. reading him. You know, he's just, yeah. yeah anybody yeah. out there, if you have, if you, if you love poetry, if you love poetry that centers around consciousness, spirituality, uh, just this, the Sufis, they got this rabid love for God kind of mm. a thing. I mean, they just, it's quite amazing. I mean, it's such a deep, passionate love that you would expect that Rumi was talking about a lover when he's speaking of his great beloved. And I know he had his muse, but nonetheless, when he's talking about the divine, he's talking about it in such a rich way that it's like he's speaking about it as if he's tasting it, you know, like really, really feeling yeah. it. Yeah. And again, uh, visceral. Visceral. Completely. Exactly. Yeah. All right. This, uh, This piece is called Why. A kid asked me why. He didn't need to say more because in his eyes was alcohol, Adderall, thoughts of suicide. I looked at him and he was me playing a different life. So I answered him, life is the best video game that we'll ever make. I mean, look around. You got to admit the graphics are insane. There are no controllers except for your brain. When your character gets hurt, you actually feel the pain. Not a single level is ever the same. And not only that, you get to have sex in this game. (laughs) You don't ever have to play alone. We've got 8 billion people in a massive multiplayer online, offline, in line at the grocery store. And that's just the people. There are plants and animals, vegetables and minerals, numerous, precious, delicious. But every game has rules. No matter what parents, pastors, politicians tell you, there is only one rule. Make 
the game better for everyone. Every game has obstacles, boss battles. That's what makes it a game worth playing. So when something comes up inside, B-side, outside, it's just a chance to level up. The dragons make the heroes. The demons make the angels. Pressure makes the diamond. Pressure makes the diamond. Iron sharpens iron. And this, right now, will make you. So you can swallow a barrel or too many pills, hit the reset button. But when you get back home where there is no pain, no struggle, no victory, no gain, you're going to miss this game. So you'll come back again to play another turn inside a new character that will never quite be you. Or maybe by the time you're ready to play again, this world won't be accepting any more plays. Life on Earth, archived by the memory of time like Sega Genesis from 89. Let me give you a cheat code to get you started. Forgive yourself mercifully. Love yourself ruthlessly. Protect the earth fiercely. Treat people identically. Compliment generously. Cultivate community. Dance expressively. Have gratitude daily. Orgasm regularly. Forget your history and live presently. And if things get a little boring, take a few grams of mushrooms and howl at the <laughs> fucking moon. Ow! So just go ahead and play, play, play pain, play work, play laugh so hard that tears well up, play fight so hard that knuckles swell up, play artist painting your masterpiece, play hero living your odyssey, or play absolutely nothing at all. However you want to, just play. This is a game you win over a lifetime, not a day. Mm. That's so great. Wow. I love it. Thanks, what do you do? So are you putting out, you'll put out a book or, or you'll do it as you a... You know, I'm uh, trying to figure that out because I now have a huge stockpile of poetry. And, um, and that, one, that one I've released on a podcast before, but I've never really even done anything much with that one either. Uh, I've always had this idea in my mind that I'm going to memorize them and then I can really perform them and then we can take mm. videos of me performing them. But I have mm. a, a, an obstacle to memorization and I think it's just an internal obstacle. I don't think it's actually an obstacle. I just got to try harder. Um, but, uh, but that's been kind of my point oh, of resistance yeah, with it. Yeah. You imagine all the, you see artists and doing shows and so on, musicians. Exactly. How the hell do you remember <laughs> all those lyrics? I can't, you know, Dylan, like he travels so much, he plays so much and it's amazing. Totally. Yeah, amazing. it is. Yeah. So, uh, just not to get deep into any kind of interpretation of that, uh, poem because it's uh, so subjective for each listener i would still say that what struck me uh i mean it's around the game the game of mm. life and nothing is going to be satisfying and, and this is my subjective thing on it until everybody is able to play the game yep in a, because in we a are everybody league you know yeah exactly as much as we try to separate ourselves it's all folly yeah and that's the bodhisattva vow that's the the buddhist vow i am i am not you know should i will become enlightened but i will not leave i will not go anywhere i will keep coming back until everyone is free it's the same right that's the poem has the bodhisattva vow within (laughs) that's beautiful man yeah. That's beautiful. I mean, I'm familiar with the Bodhisattva, but the way that that was just phrased was uh, was great. Mm, yeah. You know, I was... Uh, God, there's so much going on in our lives these days. It's just uh, pretty incredible. And a lot of yeah, real 
pushback, shall we say, from the universe. Um, I'm actually, you know, karma is involved, the collective karma that's involved here and where we're at politically in that whole situation with this pandemic, uh, the economic situation, all of it, and, and, and the core, obviously, as well, is the environment and what is happening and all of our par- participation in that. And we see that on a data. I see it in myself. On a, every time I throw something in the garbage, I've got the compost here. I've got the recycle. You know, I see what I'm doing, and I see the way in which um, I'm not full on, full out doing the right thing. So then, of course, I have to get into okay. You know, judgment and recrimination, we're going to deal with you now, right? Right. I mean, mindfulness is a good thing. But the collective karma that has created where we are right now, I mean, how about racial justice? You know, all this stuff that we are so much more aware of because of George Floyd and, and all of the other murders. And the fact that we're all good white people, right? And doing the right thing and we're... Uh, and then we start to think about the hundreds of three, four hundred years of what has happened here and what's been baked into our culture and our society and our legal system and on and on. And you start to go, okay, more of that collective karma that we have created, this which we are in now. And um, I'm actually, there's a there's a, um, a wonderful guy, a teacher, he's a... Uh, a great Ayurveda. His name is Robert Svoboda. I don't know if you know yeah, Robert. Yeah, familiar. Oh, you are? Yeah. So he he wrote a book. He had a, uh, a teacher back in the mid-late 70s. He was a kind of uh, after, when, after we were there. Uh, and he, uh, he was what's called an agori. You would love this. You should get, you would love these books, Aubrey, Okay. They're the Agora, A-G-H-O-R-A trilogy that Robert wrote. Cool. They just re- put them out again. It's his experience with this. So the Agoras were gigantic tantric practitioners. So everything to, to go beyond the limitations of the mini-me, as I call it with Duncan, uh, is to embrace everything and actually create a, a union. It, the most simplistic way uh, of saying it is, um, or, or there's a, a beautiful practice, actually, uh, that's called um, feeding the demons that the Tibetans have. So basically, and this is just a, a, a small, small repre- representational aspect of what the Robert's uh, teacher was all about. But it's it's the basic concept. I think even you and I have talked about it, which is do not push anything away. The darkness, the uh, the motivational stuff that we see in ourselves, because, you know, hopefully we're being as mindful and as aware as we can be. It's embrace it. Ram Dass actually used to talk about it when he first came back from India. You have all these crazy-ass thoughts and this dark shit, you know, and you believe, of course, we believe all of our thoughts. And um, invite them in for a cup of tea. (laughs) 
Yeah. Right. So it's that you embracing. If you don't, they're going to raise hell outside the yeah. door, scratching yeah. and burning and blowing like the big bad wolf with a, yeah, with a, exactly. you know, one hand on a gasoline can and the other hand on some matches. So yeah, unless exactly. you invite them in, you're in a lot of yeah. trouble. So anyhow, uh, but this is taken to a much more extreme level with these agoris. And there, there's very few of them that aren't in any way should anybody get near them because they're, they can be, you know, they're using drugs and alcohol as, as the way in which you might think we use it for an ayahuasca ceremony, but it's more about manipulation. It's very hard to find a pure agori these days in India, but this man was that. And so he wrote a trilogy, which is his experiences. I mean, they do stuff like sitting on corpus, uh, corpses, meditating in the in the cemetery. You know, really, really out there kind of mm. stuff that that nobody. The fear factor would be so gigantic without a proper teacher. You couldn't even approach the the tiniest speck of some of the practices that they did. Uh, so, but the third book, why I'm bringing this up, because we were talking about collective, con- uh, collective karma, rather, is that the third book is called The Law of Karma. And I, I, uh, I have never, it's such a difficult subject, karma. Uh, yeah, punch me in the face, I'm going to punch you back, mother. You know, that, mm. that's our concept, you know, ca- causal concept around karma. Uh, and he takes it to a whole other level of subtlety. And, and you, you, you read this book and you, you're at times going, oh, my God. I mean, just the tiniest little thought that goes like that, what it might cause in terms of your evolution and those of you around, those who are around you. I mean, it's just amazing. So I did a podcast with Robert um, Gee, it's a couple of years ago, and it was just, you would love to have him on. I mean, he is yeah, so I mean, I'm, I'm knowledgeable, man. Absolutely captivated just hearing about him. So yeah. so, I think that sounds great. How did, now, how did his take on karma differ or you know, agree with uh, Ram Dass's take on karma? I don't know if I can exactly compare, but one thing that runs true through both of them is that you cannot understand this with rational mind. Mm. Although intellect needs to be there, you know, we we need our ego and this is a good uh, vehicle to allow us look at the, you know we're chatting right now we're do, we're doing it right mm-hmm. uh but if you don't have that other level going on in the same time at the same time that other level provides something that's beyond reason and intellect it's it's more tuned into intuition it's more tuned into uh of course uh, rebirth has to be there right um and uh so that we're not talking about one solidified life that we experience, birth to death, and that, that's it. Or even if we th- reincarnation is something that, at least intellectually, we can say, well, that makes sense. Jimi Hendrix, <laughs> I don't know why I'm thinking of this quote. I mean, he, he said at one time, yeah, there, of course it has to be reincarnation. Can you imagine 
what are all these people are going to get stopped up in some heaven world? That's it, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, so that's certainly part of it. So it's span the span, and that's why it takes it out of rationality. Is so great, so immense the span of. Uh, what happens with whatever you want to call this thing, a soul, a Buddha mind, or, you know, whatever it may be. Uh, it's a l- very big span. So then when you start to work the concept of karma into that kind of a span, then we're talking about inclusive, uh, many different levels that we're really not aware of much of the time that is part of what makes this uh, such an important uh, teaching for for everybody. And I couldn't get around to speak to it in the way that I'd love to right now if we had Robert. That's what we should have done. We should have said, hey, Robert, come on over. Phone him in. (laughs) Phone a friend. But I am going to talk to him uh, in a couple of weeks, actually, because my, my, uh, and that's how we just started talking about collective karma, right? And that's what I want to focus on. How in the world does that work related to the fact that we are all taking these actions? We have taken, uh, actions have been taken, like in in terms of what's gone on with African-Americans for hundreds of years. We're part of that. How are we part of that? How does that kind of, you know, so I'm going to get into them with that. We'll see what happens. Yeah, it gets, and again, applying applying the intellect, it gets very squirrely. And it gets very kind of slippery. And there's some things that are patently obvious and some things that are obfuscated to our view and our own awareness. And we think that we may be doing the right thing, but we're then realizing that, oh, no, we had the wrong awareness. And it can become very complicated. But I think, as you're saying, you know, a deep message there is that probably the greatest guide star is our inner compass, that sense of knowing, that feeling where your heart unlocks and releases when you're in that, you know, separate from the mind, which might tell you, oh, this is what a good person does. Maybe, yeah. you know, maybe. But if, if your heart feels it and your heart opens and you feel that presence of the, you know, divine oneness as you're doing it, well, then that's a pretty damn good indicator. Yeah. Yeah. But back to the poem, uh, which states that nothing, basically you're saying it, it can't be a win-all for you. Right. It's got to be a win-all for us. It's the only that, rule of the game. If, if you just have that in mind, if you if if we all could carry through on a day to day basis, that uh, there's a great part in the I just don't know how many times I've quoted this uh, in the Ramdas movie that we put out last year, Becoming Nobody, uh, where at some point he goes, "When is it enough? What I want? <laughs> when is it enough? What what I need?" It's much more interesting to be of service. He didn't quite say it like that, but it's much more interesting to do something for somebody else. And we get so easily seduced and locked in this idea that more, well, more will will bring my salvation because what I have now, it may be a lot, but more will definitely be the thing that will carry that sense of happiness and peace and equanimity and satisfaction with life. It's never fucking more. (laughs) it's never more you know getting that new car getting the new thing it's never fucking more it's not going to do it that extra zero in your bank account sorry not going to do it yeah well okay let's use you as a real life example because here i am let's go 
you have had a gifted life. You are in a gifted life. I mean, there's no doubt about it. And talk mm -hmm. about karma. I mean, this doesn't happen. This happens because people, they do the right thing as they go along from incarnation to incarnation. They are obviously getting a message in their ear uh, and in their middle of their chest, uh, okay, this isn't about you just gratifying yourself and going along. This is about we. That that's, uh, has to happen in order for people to be in the position, for instance, that you're in with this wonderful company on it, mm. this wonderful podcast uh, that is reaching so many people and the kind of sharing that you do and, and all of the other activities that, that are burgeoning through at the same time, and this beautiful marriage that just happened, we have to talk about that. Uh, at the same time, your ego is being um, pounded in a good way, inflated. Mm -hmm. Look at you. Look, I called you because, Jesus, that coffee. I love that <laughs> coffee, Aubrey. <laughs> Where'd you come up with that coffee? I mean, I don't, I'm not a big coffee drinker, but somehow that thing had such beautiful, um, nutty flavor. It was yeah, fantastic. Thank you. Thank it's, you. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So what, what do you do with, with all of the stuff that comes at you that appears to be lovely, but actually can really uh, go a long way to inflating some sense of separation by virtue of it's me. I'm doing this shit, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it certainly can get slippery. I think um, the for me though, I never really, I never really take it in, honestly, because I don't necessarily feel like it's a couple things. And some are some are really healthy adaptations, and some are adaptations that I think are like a, a stopgap, kind of like a temporary circumventing of the potential challenge that could be there. For one. I don't, I don't necessarily give myself a lot of credit because I have a deep belief in how much potential I have. So at my very best, I kind of go, all right, you know, that was a good day. You know, about time you gave, your about time, you, you know, you actually did what you're capable of. Like, good job. You know, that's what you're supposed to be doing all the time. And that's this kind of refrain that I have, which can be really toxic as well, because anytime I'm not living up to that, I'm being really hard on myself. So that's one way that I keep my ego from being inflated because I have this just deep understanding and I always have. I've had from when I was a kid, I've known how blessed my life was, how my four you know, parents of different, you know, my dad and mom split when I was two, everyone was excelled in their field radically you know, and how I was able to learn from all of them and my natural gifts and talents, anything I tried, I was able to pick up really fast and I had so much that I've been gifted with that it puts so much of this burden of what was possible for me that I've always been chasing that. And I've never, I've never even, you know, come close to fulfilling what I ultimately believe I'm capable of. So that's one, that's what also keeps me humble. And, and I, and I get my ass kicked all the time. And I think one of the other things that is probably the thing maybe that I give myself the most credit for is that I've, I've never gone through a serious ass kicking and not shared it with, you know, my audience and everybody else. If I'm getting beat up, like I'm gonna show you all the bruises and I'm gonna show you every way that I went wrong, all the reasons that I created it and all the ways that I got out of it. And and that I do give myself some credit for, but that goes again back to being of service, right? I mean, the reason for that is to share that. And that's been a deep calling for me. Mm. I think um, 
the other aspect of it is that I simultaneously try not to take criticism and or take you know praise as anything that's meaningful. And and this actually I really learned this when I first came out and out publicly on the Joe Rogan Experience show, and I had you know we started on it together, and it brought up a lot of enmity from you know from the audience and from a select minority of people who were jealous, angry, upset, wanting to tear me down. And I never experienced that before. And it was- Wait, why? Why? I don't get that. I'm not sure the psychological dynamics of it, but there's, you know, Rogan has a huge following. And I think um, there's, a t- he has a ton of fans who've really, you know, he's impacted their life in an incredibly positive way. And then there's some who- have some it triggers some kind of anger or jealousy or and Mm. for me i think because rogan and i were friends it particularly triggered that jealousy or triggered that anger why is why does aubrey get to be friends with joe when i'm not i'm just supposing (laughs) Uh, that that's the that that's the impetus for it i'm not really sure but it, Mm. it extends not just to me it wasn't that you know i was the only one that this had this experience it happens to a lot of the guests on joe's show um but anyway, so that happened and people were aggressive. They aggressively kind of came out and, and started, you know, trying to tear me down, digging up things, making up lies, you know, and, no. and talking about so my family so. and, and all kinds of crazy stuff that wasn't even true. Um, and I actually, so I was really good friends at that point with, and it, it deeply affected me, you know, so, mm-hmm. and, and having it deeply affect me showed how subject i was to the validation from the public i was still very much feeding off of that in a mm. in an incredibly significant way because it, it devastated me i mean it was it was crushing so i talked to my friend bodie miller who was an olympic skier world world champion skier yeah, won sure, a we know. gold medal but he was always someone who lived his own way he was a renegade he was a maverick and he would if he wanted to go out to the bars the night before a race he absolutely would he did that in the torino olympics and he got you know, paparazzi was out there filming him and eventually he got sick of him and he flipped him off and then, you know, went home and then crashed in the next race, which is not unusual for Bodhi. Bodhi either wins or crashes pretty much every race he races. He just races on that edge and that's how he likes to race. But nonetheless, everybody, the whole news media painted the story that he didn't care about winning. He didn't care about America. He was unpatriotic. He ruined, you know, all of this whole story. And he actually, so one of the things that the sports agencies do is they measure the kind of negative sentiment for players or athletes. And there's an index that they create based on the amount, somehow they scan the press and they look at it and they create an index for how low you've gotten on a PR level. And he was actually below OJ Simpson when OJ Simpson was was rolling around in his Bronco. So that's how bad it got for him so anyways i I go to bodie and i'm like hey man i'm i'm devastated here man i mean people are just making stuff up they're coming out of the woodwork and you know bodie got just you know trash bags full of death threats and it was it was he really went through it he's like look man the only person who knows whether you did something good or whether you did something that that wasn't good or not up to your potential is you nobody else has that purview nobody has any understanding so you cannot either listen to the detractors or listen to the people who are trying to pump your tires because neither one of them knows anything, only you do. And, and that was really significant advice for me. And, um, and so really, 
while certainly the praise is overwhelming as compared to the you know detractors that are out there now um I always keep that in mind. And, you know, so I don't really let in any of the praise or the positivity. And, and my mm. wife kind of gets on me sometimes. She's like, can't you see what, what, they're, what you've done for them and how you've impacted their life? I'm like, yeah, yeah, and it's lovely. But I, but I, won't, I won't take it in. And it's like this, mm. this block. And I think yeah. I created that block from that negative, you know, that negative feedback. Because I don't think you can be selective. It's, I don't think you can really take in praise that may be unwarranted and not take in criticism that may be unwarranted. You have to understand that neither one of those different people fully understand what you're capable of, what you did, what your motivation was, not what, not only what you did, but how you did it, why you did it, you know, all of the things there. Nobody really gets that. So mm. for me, I just kind of, you know, observe and like lovingly receive whatever comes out there, but I don't let it, I don't let it fully land. And that's, yeah, that's I guess great. that's how I've navigated mm. this without it totally inflating my ego yeah no i hear you i'm i'm for me it's very very similar i don't i would put it more like i don't take it seriously either way although to be honest the negative i will take more seriously because the old mini me inside here (laughs) is going yeah you stupid piece of shit (laughs) (laughs) i hear you man i hear you it's definitely uh definitely more more of a practice when the negative starts coming. yeah yeah no for sure for sure oh boy uh so when uh aubrey and i did a podcast on on aubrey's uh show earlier this year was it yeah which i it was last year but I, i highly recommend it it was 2019 um but well, at the, no it was the just after ramdas left it had to be earlier this year no it was it was we talked about oh, ramdas was definitely had gone and that's december 22nd 2019 so it was yeah it after like that Jan- yeah. yeah wow and it was before covid and mm-hmm. you were in la and we got yep. together yeah that's it yeah yeah so but one of the things we talked about, what we were talking about, we were talking about... It was a great show, by the way, everybody. If, you're, uh, if you want to drop in <laughs> Aubrey Marcus' podcast, it was one of my, one of my favorite shows of that time period. Yeah, for it, sure. was, it, was it was great. We had a great time. But we were talking about guru, I think, a little bit, and about what that is and how, that, how to relate with that. It's not a concept in the West that makes any real sense, you know, because there's so many... Um, the intellectual ideas around surrender and stuff like that around a guru, you know, are just mind-blowing. That's why Ramdas, when he came back from India, the first time he sat down and he did these talks... He said, well, there's a few things here that I can't really talk about. Surrender, not good. Can't talk about that. Gurus, woo, give all your money up and go to a guru. You know, we have some had some very crazy people. Anyhow, we were having this conversation. And you said at one point, well, I did, I do, not did, I do have someone like that in my life. Uh, you know, as that inner, has been an inner guide, has been unconditional, unconditional love, you know, the things that mm-hmm. uh, represent the true guru. I said, really? I'm expecting to hear, like, okay, he's got an Indian teacher somewhere, a <laughs> Buddhist lama, something. He's, I said, well, who? He goes, my mom. <laughs> Remember? Yep. Absolutely true. And that just absolutely perked my ears because... 
I have been hearing from His Holiness, and I told you this when we talked, uh, His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, it pretty much says, look, what, what uh, our world to change, what is predicates that, it's all about mother. The mothers that raise their children with love and compassion, those children are going to go on and do the kinds of things that will help uh, help reverse some of the collective karma, help uh, related to the environment, related to uh, the continuation of, of, of uh, patriarchal stuff and wars and power, all of it is a mother doing the right thing with a child. You're the only man I know, man, woman, anybody that had that kind of... You, so you have to describe it. You have to describe it. I think one of the best ways to describe it is, you know, obviously um, in the last 10 years or so, my, you know, I've become an increasingly visible public figure uh, from the podcast, from On It, from the best selling book, all the different things that have kind of been a part of my life. And so, you know, recently, maybe, you know, a few years ago, someone comes up to my mom who's known my mom for a while and says, Kathy, aren't you just so proud of Aubrey for everything that he's done? And she just looked at her with a straight quizzical face and said, well, what do you mean? I've been proud of him the same way since the day he was born. Mm. And it's true. It's true. It's never been this conditional paradigm. It doesn't matter what I accomplished. The, the hug and the dinner that I got when I became a New York Times bestseller was no different than the hug the day before or the year before, or 10 years before when I was struggling and figuring out what I was going to do and I didn't think I was going to be able to you know, give my gift of medicine to the world and I was really having a hard time. It never wavered. And you know, that's contrasted with, you know, I love my father and I really value you know, how much of his intellect I was able to assimilate and, and the relationship we had. We had some great experiences together. But nonetheless, I always remember that was quite the opposite. When I played a good basketball game, I could feel a different level of love coming from my dad. You know, when I scored 30 versus if I scored three and fouled out, you know, or and you apply that to any different scenario, it was just, it just felt different. And with my mom, it's never felt different. Not a single mm. day, no matter what, no matter if I've really fucked up, you know, like, I mean, I've wound up in the hospital because I was being stupid and she was there like there was never a moment of judgment and there was never even i was never punished <laughs> which was weird you know like there was never even a moment of punishment where she used love as you know because that's another another thing that people use mm -hmm. they use the retraction of love as a form of punishment as a way to manipulate that never even existed you know i mean it, it was just never even a part of a part of the paradigm i can remember one time where I was being a smart ass around 12, where my mom like got a little angry and a little sharp with me. And it was like, oh my God, what did I just do? You know? <laughs> and it was nothing. It was like a, a moment that was over and over. Just like if a if a pet, you know, I mean if a little cub gets a little aggressive with mom when they're wrestling, you know, the mom, a lion will just go, Rah! you know, like snarl at him. And it was like, I got that snarl. And I still remember it to this day because it's like literally wow. the one moment where I felt that. And and so, yeah, she's just a remarkable, remarkable being. And uh, 
I mean, I, I can, I can probably not overstate or overestimate the importance of having that in my life from the feminine, you know, and I've had, I think it's contributed to a lot of beautiful relationships, you know, romantic relationships. I've had also my relationship with the earth herself, you know, all of these things on Mm -hmm. the feminine, um, have been really easy and in alignment for me. Whereas, you know, of course, as I said, all the love and respect to my father, but that's where the challenges have come in that kind of masculine archetype. And, uh, mm-hmm. and that's where I always wonder if I'm not enough. I wonder if I'm not good enough. I've even had, you know, I, I've had a struggle my whole life with male friendships, always worrying that if I did something wrong, maybe they wouldn't be my friend anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, where does that come from? Well, that comes from, you know, what I learned from the masculine, but just such a, such a powerful thing to have the whole feminine archetype as represented by my mother and her mother, my grandmother, just so impeccable. I mean, it's such a blessing. And and then that goes again to what I was saying about how fucking blessed I am. Cause like Mm. it is, I know how rare this is. Yes. You've got to know how rare this is. (laughs) I mean, it's an unfortunate thing to even say, but oh boy. Uh, Especially, I mean, my mother, for instance, was fairly unconditional, but she had real uh, illnesses, ma- you know, massive depression, stuff like that. And so that affected the possibilities, right? So that karma, it is what it is. Uh, and uh, I was f- fortunate that going to India and meeting Neem Karoli Baba, uh, uh, he, because I had a terrible time did I tell you this before? With my father, he was, he was like a ty- tyrannical screamer, angry, angry. You know, came out of the war, you know, the Second World War. He was like a bomber pilot. And most of the people in his squadron died. And he thought he wasn't afraid to die because he made it through that. I mean, just really, mm. really tough stuff. He, uh, he came to India to see my brother and I because we were telling him, hey, we're with this incredible being. I mean, you can't imagine what blah, blah, blah. And he says, okay, I'm going to come. I mean, that's not something I was, I, I, I loved him and I wanted him to be there in one sense. In another sense, I was like, ooh, God, <laughs> shit. You know, and as soon as he sat down, by the way, with Maharaji, the first thing Maharaji looks at me and he goes, Hey, you only love your father because he gives you money, right? I'm like, well, I, I, I. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, there's some stuff, Maharaji, which he used to do with people, immediately break their minds down. He told them who was on the plane with him from where it stopped in Frank or whatever. No, nobody even, I didn't know about it. Who would even tell anybody about that? And he and then my father was like, you know, it was like a punch to the head. You know, you're knocked yeah. back a little bit. Yeah. Right. You can't continue believing in this shit totally. It's like, OK, we got five percent down on that one. And he, he would do that. And then he turned to me and said, did you give him the medicine? He says to me, did I give my father the medicine? Yeah. Yeah. He, he had a cold. I gave him some aspirin, whatever, Tylenol. He said, night. The medicine that Ramdas gave me. I went, acid? My dad? And my father went, LSD. <laughs> and 
And he says to me, take care of your father while, you, while he's in India with you. In fact, meet me in two, in two weeks, 10 days or something in this other place called Allahabad. I, I knew where to go. Uh-huh. So we went to Benares. Benares in India is the place where they've been burning. That's where people go to die. Mm. So burning bodies for like, you know, 5,000 years on the same spot. And we were in a houseboat right by it. And my, you know, you're, you're like, uh, bodies are that can't get completely burned or floating by while you're brushing your teeth. And there's dad. Wow. <laughs> He's still wow. fucked up. And uh, somebody happened to have a hit of acid. I gave it to him. He actually took it. You know, this is like what, what he might have been. Late 40, 50-odd-year-old uh, advertising, something from Mad Men. He was that yeah. guy, Don. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> And uh, anyhow, he took the acid. He had a death trip from uh, here to forever. I mean, people, we were bumping into dead bodies that needed money because they didn't have a lot of family to burn the body to get enough wood, basically. And he went through this thing. And then, and then we went back and we met with Maharaji. And he absolutely... Uh, didn't say one word about you think, oh, hey, how was your trip? Of course, Maharaji, with, there's no rational shit going on. <laughs> mm-hmm. And he just told my father a whole other story about a horse farm he had and horses that uh, my father saved a horse from being euthanized that had a bad leg. He got, got up every, every couple of hours. I knew about this. But of course, who, you know, my father knew that Maharaji didn't know anything about that. And right. he described the whole thing. My father fell on the floor. And that was the end of that. Saved my, the rest of my life with my father. Incredible. Otherwise, no chance. We were so, uh, it wasn't a lack of love, but there was so fucking much judgment that, mm. you know, you, you reminded me of it when you talked about your father. It's okay when you're scoring, and it ain't so okay if you ain't scoring, you know. Yeah. And uh, that was it in spades with my dad. And everyone, uh, it turned on a dime after that. He actually went back to India after he went home and took my sister and her boyfriend. Uh, my whole entire family was with Maharaji at, at one point or another. Uh, and, uh, he, yeah, he was made anew. It was like a biblical thing, man. It was unbelievable. So what do you think when you look out at the world now, and I know that, you know, Ramdas, I believe he said, and I don't know if I interpret this correctly, but he says the age of the guru has passed, you know, we are past the age of the guru. So, and it seems when you look out into the world, you don't see these beings like Maharaji, like Neem Karoli Bob, you don't see that they're, they're actualized at this level. And is, would that, was that something that you see? Or is that, is that a perception that's limited in my, in my vantage point? Or what do, you, what do you feel about whether, you know, the, the times that we're in, whether we're going to see a new emergence of this or whether the, the call and the ask is for all of us to step into our own, you know, our own potential, our own spiritual potential, and it's not mm. supposed to be led by anybody specifically to be that doorway again what do you think well that uh, what you're referring to actually i think it comes from Thich Nhat han the uh, vietnamese uh, zen master and uh the the new buddha so amitab i think the new buddha is supposed to come uh, is the sangha is us mm practitioners who are moving to make uh, 
the bodhisattva thing happen, just like from the poem. We're back to the poem. Yeah. So we all can play. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that that's absolutely true in our times and so on. But it's not a one-dimensional truism. In other words, okay, yeah, there's no more gurus. We're the, you know, that's that's a. a as Ramdas used to say, there's more than one plane operate. You, we can operate on more than one plane at the same time. And we always and do. Hit, and we always do, although we miss some of the more subtle planes. Uh, and in this case, we can miss it with this kind of a statement sure. that is perfectly true. And at the same time, and Ramdas would have said this to people, uh, it's something I personally experience is that Everyone has that thing deep inside that is a guide. It, calling it, oh, you can call it a guru, you know. I mean, it's such a terrible word these days, you know. Uh, yeah, the Pepsi guru is coming around and, we, you know, I mean, <laughs> whatever. Uh, but there is, yeah, and how that manifests is so, can be very subtle, can be as subtle as just deepening your intuitive process. That you're not dependent on this, you know, wonderful mind and believing every thought. It can be that, it, all the way to I, you know, I, and this isn't about my guru is better than your guru or anything. This is just my experience with people because I get so much mail as a director of Love Server Member Foundation. I get. I mean, I'm talking. I just talked to a young woman, 20 years old, and. Uh, the door opened up and uh, what I'm trying to say is these beings like this and and he's you know I've met others not a lot like this which were living certainly in a body without duality that's Mm. very impossible (laughs) okay there's no subjective objective shit going on at all there's just the right thing for everybody just service there's nothing going on but that. So Neem Karoli Baba, is, that's my experience. Mm. And he has, um, I could tell you stories, that, uh, you've cut your hair short, but it would still raise it up a little bit. <laughs> uh, it's just, um, okay, you want to hear one? Yeah, let's I'll go. I'll tell you one, okay? And, and again, this isn't about this man in the blanket that we knew back then. This is about the divine does manifest what we need in any moment and is capable with a body or without a body, and, and that's what I mean by guru. Uh, a good, uh, someone I was with back in the day who met Maharaji and all of that, Lovely woman, close friend, had a terrible car accident last year, broke her neck, right? And uh, there was a GoFundMe thing to try and raise money to help with rehab and all of that. And it just never got fixed. She couldn't, she can't drive because she can't turn her, you know, it's really terrible, Mm -hmm. terrible thing. So she went to another doctor, and uh, a doctor said, look, there's, there's this new apparatus that if you use it, I think it will really help you, uh, some sort of brace. But it's four grand. She said, well, I don't have four grand right now. And I've been spending all, you know, all money. I can't work. You know, just it, not a great story. She calls her best friend, happens to be my 
uh, mother of my children, my first wife, and says, um, no, I'm sorry, I got it a little backwards. Okay, before she makes the call telling my ex, Aparvati is her name, who wrote this wonderful book, by the way, Love Everyone, all of our stories of us that I'm telling, that I've told a couple, you know, going to India and I'll go get that book. You'll love it. So Parvati was the admin person for GoFundMe. And somebody, a young Indian man got in touch with her before she heard from her friend, Radha, who had this terrible accident. And uh, it was a young Indian man in the tech industry, like early 30s or something. And uh, he said, okay, I have a, uh, I've really tried to get in touch with like Krishna Das and other people. I, nobody seems to respond to me, but I really have to talk to somebody because I'm having visitations from Neem Karoli Baba. <laughs> Dreams, sometimes just hearing him talk to me. I mean, and I'm not into this shit. What's going on? Okay. So he tells this to uh, Parvati. And he says, so you know what? He told me, I got to give $4,000 to Radha. So Parvati goes, okay, you can just do it through the, you know, through the GoFundMe thing, whatever. And they have a chat about all this stuff that that has been going on with him that he's like flipped out because it can't be real. What's going on? Then she gets the call from Radha saying, I just went to a doctor. He told me I can get a device that would really help me, but I need four grand. Uh. Huh? <laughs> It's a little thing, you know? I mean, and if you don't think that that, I call it that thing there, because in Montreal I had a lot of French friends who didn't speak perfect English and they couldn't explain something. They'd go, you know, that thing there. Mm -hmm. So that thing there's my thing. It's a set of God. I'm not really into the God word. It's, I don't know. And uh, so whatever Maharaji is part of that universal divine presence, it's, it's not separate anymore. Needed to have that happen for her, I guess. I hope it's going to. She did get the thing, by the way. Mm. She just got it. We're talking a few weeks ago here. We're not talking about some, you know, back in decades or anything. This is a now. And... Um, We'll see what happens. But that now includes me telling you this story. And I don't know if I've told it before on Mind Rolling or not. Uh, I tend to repeat some of these stories. But uh, repetition is a good thing as far as I'm concerned. But it just points out that there is a something that goes on. Absolutely. And so when we say the Sangha is the guru now, uh, it is absolutely true. As well as the fact is there is a in the deepest part, an entity that we, it's not, uh, Ramana Maharshi said, God, guru, and self, they're one. There's only mm. one thing going on ultimately. Right. Yeah. So uh, from that point of view, and, and you can't do anything about it. They, they pick the thing. They, you know, they're, they're making whatever that thing there is, they're making it known at a certain point. You, know, yeah. you, can't, you can't force that. Yeah. It, so what it, what occurs to me is then 
the interesting part for me where the thing, the part that trips me up is when there seems to be access to something that hasn't happened yet. And I think time is the most difficult, the, the convergent, the, the interplay of time and free will is where mm. things get squirrely for me. Right. And, mm-hmm. and I don't, cause I tend to lean towards the side of free will in which the future actually has not happened yet because there's the choice that's available for every different individual to make that choice, which is necessary. And to preserve free will, there has to be an unknown future otherwise, but maybe not. And I can understand I've gone down some philosophical, you know, explorations of how something could have already happened in the future, but still maintain the preservation of the choice in the moment. And maybe that's the synthesis that, that you're going to be pointing here to. Mm-hmm. But what you're saying is, is that the entity of Maharaji was aware of something that was about to happen, that she was about to go to a doctor and about to get this device recommended. That hadn't happened yet. It might not have happened if she decided not to go to that doctor or if that doctor decided not to mention this new device. There's a variety of different circumstances that could have you know, played out in which that wouldn't have happened. But somehow Maharaji was privy to that information before it even happened. So what does that mean about the future? You know, so that's something that I, I'd love to get your thoughts on it because I, I don't think I've ever come to a full reconciliation with my own philosophical yeah. paradigm. Okay, we don't have that pay grade. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, I'm serious. I mean, I, uh, you know, what you're talking about free will, though, I will, will say something about that because we did uh, actually and and again this is a story we've told before and it's 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 worth retelling because it it directly addresses what you're talking about um ramdas went to neem karoli baba and said isn't it true that gr- grace and karma are the same in other words action and the fact that it's all within the known possibilities, there's no, there's no, you know, you can't, uh, you can't fuck the game up in any way. You can't, it's just not possible. And you know what Maharaji said? Can't talk about that in public. Interesting. Went, what? <laughs> <laughs> and so then later came a message to Ramdas from Maharaji that said, Ramdas and I understand each other very well. So Ramdas thought, okay, there's got to be a way that they are, but he wouldn't say that. And we would talk about this forever because it's it's all about, you know, free will is, is really what we're... Is it? Or is it all, you know, written within some... I mean, you can go to India, man, and, and get... A, there's the... A, on the they what is it they use banana leaf or something you go there and you give them your birthday or something i don't know but deepak's done it too you know he's gone there and talked you just they it's exactly what the fuck is happening with you in your life now so it's like the uh, the akashic records are written in advance yeah yeah exactly so so that concept all right Anyhow, I eventually talked to this saint. Um, her name is Siddhi Ma, who was like our Indian mother, Maharaji, when he left. She, she just left it like mm, two, three years ago. And I said to her, Ma, what's the deal here with karma and grace, with taking action yet 
it's all completely within the law. And she said, it is true that they are the same. There's only one. But you cannot walk around. It is not, you cannot know anything of, at this level. And you, you, you walk around as if they are not the same because there's no way that you can understand that unless you are completely free. She didn't quite go into that detail. Right. But just said, yeah, you got to take action. You absolutely got to take action. And that's the way, you know, it makes the most sense to me to try and understand that, you know, time and future and, and is it all just one thing? Is there multiple other um, existences that are reflective of, of the one we're going through now? And I mean, that's why I said, well, I don't have the pay grade for that. But you know what? I also don't have the, I don't have the time to go into that kind of mental warp kind of thing. Yeah, yeah I think it was a philosopher, William James, who said, you know, I'm not sure if we have free will or not, but my life is better if I act like I do. Mm. You know, and that was mm. his very mm. pragmatic approach yeah. to this. Yeah. This like, okay, yeah. you know, maybe it, maybe, maybe it already has been written, but the belief that we're writing in ourselves with our own pen, you yeah. know, and our own steps and our own words and our own actions, that gives the, the richest experience of this life yeah. to play a game Absolutely. and not a, not a movie. Yeah, yeah, and, and absolutely, uh, and just having the ideal that um, we, as you, you said in the very, very beginning about, we are not separate. We are absolutely interconnected with each other. And that poem spells it out. There's no game unless we're all in it, mm -hmm. unless we all have that same uh, opportunity. And uh, I think that once you assume something like that and make that part of the, your day-to-day -day life, that starts to assume that you're going to be let, you, you hopefully get into a little mindfulness by Joseph Goldstein's book, Mindfulness is the greatest book around this subject that I've ever read. And uh, he's a fantastic teacher, by the way. Uh, and once you have a little bit of mindfulness, you can see all the self-motivations, you can see all of the manipulations and so and, you know, you're witnessing it from hopefully Ram Dass's loving awareness place. You're not just going, you piece of shit every second to yourself. Uh, then uh, you are ultimately, there's no way you can't uh, pretend that you're connected, not connected to that thing that we all call so many different things. And, of course, the way I love love it most is through the poetry of Hafiz. We talked mm. about that. Uh, there's no way that you don't recognize that. And once you recognize that, then you're, you're grabbed on to uh, grace. That's grace. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So it's makes a me, Just poem. even hearing Hafiz's name makes me want to go right back behind me. You see my library there and pull out yeah, one yeah. of my Hafiz books and, and yeah. dive back in. It's, yeah, uh, exactly. It's so yeah. good. Such a great reminder. And how... Yeah. What a blessing it is to have people in a you know distant time in the past who write something that's as relevant to something that we've just discovered, rediscovered for ourselves, and we read it and we go, oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. like I, I I feel that you know I feel that truth. Yeah, yeah, no, it's uh, again that's that's what grace is all about, really. 
everything gets presented to us. It's what we need in the moment to just become a kinder, more compassionate, loving human. You know, that that's what it's all about. That mm-hmm. That's why uh, getting too much into the philosophy of what the reality is around um, uh, the... Uh, the extraordinary qualities of of time and how that affects us and you know that's why the whole be here now thing is a, is a it's like a <laughs> simplistic statement yet it's everything because we spend so much time looking into the future or the past and uh it's a waste of time shall we say we uh by the way we we have the, um, the Ramdas's memoirs coming out uh, next month in January twenty. Incredible, um, yeah. In, the, in you, written form, or is it another doc? It's a big, fat five hundred and fifty, six hundred page book, page book with a lot of pictures, and it's right from the beginning. And it's seeing his life through the eyes of the guru, basically, in terms of seeing the extraordinary grace that led him from one thing. He had a certain kind of mother, he had a certain kind of father, it, you know, privileged upbringing, Harvard. And he saw all of it, psychedelics, how it just led him to be able to be the offering that he was in his Incredible. lifetime. I can't wait yeah. for that. Yeah, you're going to get it. I'm going to get it to you. All right. I'm waiting for copies right now. Yeah. Amazing. Well, maybe we'll schedule schedule our show after I get that book and it launches and then uh yeah yeah and then and we'll have another chat and I can we can talk about all those stories cuz you were certainly yeah. privy to be able to add some color to There's the There's story and stories that I never heard in this book that's why it blew my mind you mm. know it's it's just except also next year is the 50th anniversary of Be Here Now yeah 1971 it came out so 2021 and uh we're going to have a whole bunch of stuff going on thank I mean Thank God there is uh, some potential for immunization, inoculation, you know, uh, and that we'll be able to get together. So we're going to have something, uh, I think, to celebrate. Not think, I'm, we're planning it. We'll just see what the uh, gods have to say about it mm. uh, to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Be Here Now. Uh, yeah, so uh, we'll have to get you out for that to get you back to L.A. at some point from... Uh, the beautiful city of Austin. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Hey, I have a question for you that, uh, yeah. and I don't know if we've discussed this before. I don't think we have, but one thing that sticks out, and that was from listening to um, the podcast you do, where you have a speech from Ramdas, and then you, you yeah. run the intro. About to do another one right now. Oh, beautiful, <laughs> after beautiful. This. I, I love that show. Um, so in one of the talks he was giving, he talks about a practice that he did with a select group of friends. And that practice was that you each play a game where you're trying to say something that's going to hook the other person, that's going to get them you know, kind of off kilter and maybe cause an emotional reaction or cause some way in which it shows that they're not really free and that they, and it seems like this way of like almost as two, you know, friends on the same team would spar with each other to become a better combatant in the ring this is a way to like spiritually spar with a friend that you have to see if there's a way that you can challenge each other in a productive way with the goal being the the, your mutual growth together but the way he described it and, and obviously even thinking about it it's an intense game because you just speak out of 
the top of your mind not trying to play tricks but just everything that you know possibly comes to mind knowing that there may be some things that challenge you know the person that you're you're you know speaking in this stream of consciousness with have you ever tried that because I, I haven't yet but i'm highly curious to try and do it to try and get myself in such a centered place that we could just go back and forth and see if we can kind of throw each other off balance kind of like sumo wrestling for the psyche mm. i've never heard of this yeah, I'll, I'll have to find. So you got to find. I'll have I'll, to find Here's that. what I think you're referring to. Okay, and it wasn't a challenge thing. It was with Ramdas, but it was this. It was, okay, we would go sit one-on-one with him, you know, just a few couple of feet away and doing complete eye contact, right? Not diverting, not doing anything, but just right here, right now. And he would say, whatever it is that you're afraid to say, tell me now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's what it was. <laughs> and, and, and so you could go would, back and forth with that, yeah. People would go, you know, the, the funny thing is that we were in an ashram and he was doing this up in the Himalayas, the high Himalayas. <laughs> it was about, I don't know, 20, 25 of us. And we all, these rooms that we had, you, you could hear everything. You know, it's India. There's no mm. insulation. There's no nothing. So people would go in his room and everyone on either side, up, down, heard what that person with the worst, terrible garbage that would come out of their mouths of the fear of telling anybody the deepest, dark series, secrets, right? And so they used to, so we all knew what was going on with each other. Mm. In, can I tell you what the number one deep, dark horror was in every person? Please. Fear? Huh? Please. Around what subject? Sex. You win. <laughs> 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 exactly yeah. that. Is that. And that's, you know, that's funny. I mean, not to divert from what you're talking about, but in the West, fear of sex is the one of the most gigantic things that we got. Maybe it's not just in the West. I don't know, but I know we've got Probably it. Probably particularly States. in the West. I mean, with all the repression yeah. that we have. I think yeah. it was uh, Bertrand Russell who's, who said that if it was, if all of the sudden we could all read each other's thoughts, for the first two weeks, everybody would hide in their house in horror and terror. <laughs> yeah. And then after two weeks of it, we'd all realize, oh, okay, we're all thinking the same shit anyways. Yeah, <laughs> right. Know, just yeah. a different... And, well, that's what happened with us. So we were all privy to each other's bullshit. And we had a lot less um, judgmental stuff about our own thing. Once you do that, you... I mean, so it is a great exercise. Not quite what I thought you were thinking in the beginning in terms of provoking and, and then having a back and forth. That, that might be a nice new idea yeah, to do. Yeah, I may have got it twisted. I may have, may have kind of extrapolated something else because what you're saying is familiar. I remember that story specifically yeah. being told. I, th- I maybe confused it with his intention of, you know, why I moved to New- why he moved to New York. You know, it was because New oh, York, was New York would encounter- hook him. Yeah. Yep. You know, and I so I thought this was a practice that he would also do with people, like where he'd be like, "All right, let's try to hook each other," you know, just like New York no, is, has no. the opportunity to hook me. But I think yeah. it's, I still think it's an interesting idea, even if that wasn't a practice that he had or anything to come up with. We should, but it's definitely like it's intense. You got to take some deep breaths. You know, you got to take some deep breaths yeah. and really be honest. 
really yeah. be honest when when someone and touches a spot and non-reactive. Someone touches yeah. a spot, especially yeah. in the times we're in where everybody yeah. is so reactive. It yeah. seems like a practice. Maybe that's why it's on my mind is everybody's so sensitive right now. And if yeah. you like trained yourself to be a little less sensitive with a, in a loving container, but like, you're like, ah, mm. got me. And then you're just really yeah. honest. Like I'm feeling yeah. this. And yeah, this is yeah. what came up when you, when you started talking about I think it's a this. great idea. You know what? Let's do a podcast with Duncan and do this. Yes, for, the, for sure. <laughs> Duncan for sure. Trussell. <laughs> that would be amazing. Oh my God. I'll have to talk to him about it. Oh, well, this has been wonderful hanging with you. It always yeah. is, man. Aubrey, it always is. It always is. Yeah. Thank God for Zoom, huh? Yeah, no <laughs> we, we can do this, and but I want we want to meet in person. So next year we're looking for uh, by the summer something good happening on Great. that score. And uh, meanwhile, everybody, uh, this is mind rolling on Be Here Now Network. Go to beherenownetwork.com, and you got all these. Uh, I talked about Joseph Goldstein. Boy, you know I can't say more about him. Uh, he's, uh, he's got some good stuff up there now, so go check it out. And, uh, I, uh, I, I thank you again. And Aubrey, we will, uh, I don't know if you can get, get somebody to get me some linkage going here with some of the poetry and the way that you put it out. Okay. Absolutely. Brother. Particularly this poem that you, um, that you read early in the podcast. Absolutely. I want to share that. And, and the book, all, you know, all of it, because we want to share with everybody. Amazing. You do such great work. Thank you. So thank you, thank you. And uh, we shall see everybody next time on Be Here Now Network on Mind Rolling.